you know, on podcast days, I feel like I drink so much water. I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. I'm drinking all this water and I'm pretty sure I'm just drinking a regular amount of water <laughs> instead of just yeah my normal like two, maybe three glasses a day. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to be hydrated. No, that's not true. Once a week, I know what it's like to be hydrated. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 13 of Ship of Magic, Transitions, which starts off with Brashen. Right in the morning from his long talk when he was drunk with Althea from last night. Right. He wakes up on Paragon. Well, morning quotes. (laughs) It says morning sunlight had penetrated the thick panes of the bay windows, so... That's right. I mean, morning. (laughs) Just not the crack of dawn, you know? Yeah, like a real sailor should, according to Paragon, I think later. (laughs) Right, yeah. He wakes up and he swings his feet out of the hammock and he thinks guilty. He was guilty of something. Spending all his pay when he had sworn that this time he would be wiser, yes. But that was a familiar guilt. This was something else, something that bit with sharper teeth. Oh, Althea. The girl had been here last night begging his advice, or he had dreamed her, and he had given her his bitterest counsels with not a word of hope or an offer of help from him. He tried to shrug the concern away. After all, what did he owe the girl? Nothing. Not a thing. They hadn't even really been friends. Too big of a gap in status for that. He had just been the mate on her father's ship, and she had been the daughter of the captain. No room for a friendship there. And as for the old man, well, yes, Ephraim Vestret had done him a good turn when no one else would, had let him prove himself when no one else would. But the old man was dead now, so that was that. Besides, bitter as the advice had been, it was solid. So, he is feeling a little bit of guilt for how he spoke and how he gave that advice, and what advice he gave to Althea. Remember, it ended with uh, Althea asking, then what can I do different, and... Brashen said, be born again, but as a male. Right. And I think this little tirade of Brashen is his way of trying to get away from feeling the guilt. There's a lot of excuses as to why it's not really that big of a deal. Like Althea, he and Althea aren't even that close. And sure, he liked her dad, but... He's gone now, and what does he really owe her? And was it really that unfair of him to be so coarse? It's what she needed to hear. And I just think it's really interesting to see this inner working of how he goes through his guilt and the different layers of, like, what guilt means to him and how comfortable guilt seems to be on him. Something that he's had to wear, have to wear all of his life because I'm sure he felt guilt and shame for from his family, right? Or his youth, <laughs> right? Yeah, which you know I think something about Brashen that's really interesting is he's this he's such a flawed character, but in a different way than like our Fitz character is. 
I think Fitz also kind of deals with the type of addiction to the skill, but Brashen has this different addiction that feels more real world and there's more guilt with it because unlike magic, there's not really like a fantastic outcome. It's not like Brashen wasting his money away on alcohol and drugs is making the world a better place in any capacity. So there's no real room to be like, well, sure, it's not the best for my health, but at least it's doing something good. There's not even that layer. So we really get a character who is suffering with that struggle of living through addiction. Right. And and the interesting about this is, at least to me, Hob presents alcoholism as not a thing. Like you can't be addicted to alcohol. It's just a thing that sailors do. Right. And in this port, we see Brashen drinking pretty much every day, all of his money away. And it's said uh, from Kenneth and from everyone else around Bingtown that all the sailors just get back to port and then drink. That's basically what they do. And then they go back on the ship and they sail for, you know, six months and they come back and they drink a bunch, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you're an alcoholic, but there's aspects of that in there. Right. I mean, and then later on, like you said, we see him lapse back into his Sindin and his drug use, which happens once he's on the, uh, the slaughter ship, I think. Yes. Yeah. It, I think it's a really interesting journey that will be, I don't want to say fun because it's a little dark, but like, it'll be interesting to watch Brashen go through, especially with the lens of him fighting that, uh, fighting urges and seeing how people in this world treat things and how Brashen is living through it. And I think, like you said, there's not necessarily something wrong with like at the end of a long voyage going to get drink. But when you're like Brashen where he literally doesn't have a penny to his name anymore because he's, he never saves. He's always spending it on drink and he's not, he doesn't have a place to sleep. He has to sleep in an abandoned old ship because he's choosing to spend that money on alcohol instead. And I don't know. I just think, I think Brashen as a character is really interesting to me for that reason that He's a lot, I don't know, he's a lot less pretty, I guess. Not not physically, just like as a character, he doesn't, it's not as pretty of a journey for him. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. Although the only reason that he's sleeping in an abandoned ship and not in an inn is because no sailors sleep in an inn, really. Don't they all like just sleep on their ship that they're sailing out with? I don't think that's true. Because Brashen does. Yeah, but Brashen's homeless. (laughs) Like he doesn't have a family to go back to. (laughs) I think a lot of the sailors are pretty much homeless too. I don't know. I don't think it's like a majority. I don't know. I guess maybe it is. It, (laughs) it, It felt as though it was not necessarily... The most normal thing. Maybe. Yeah, that could be true. We don't have any reference, I guess. (laughs) But he's thinking about, you know, last night and trying to process through his guilt and say like, oh, it's, you know, it, it wasn't my fault for anything. This is what she needed to hear. And it doesn't matter if it was harsh because we weren't friends. And to be fair, Althea doesn't treat him well. (laughs) Every time that he tried to have sympathy, she kind of like brushed him off. So when he's drunk, the bitterness kind of comes out and he is regretful in the next morning. And then he's thinking through trying to process this more and has the thoughts of if I went back in time, I would do everything prim and proper that my father did. 
or father said I would go schooling, wouldn't touch drinking or send in at all. I'd marry who he wanted me to, whatever. I would be the heir eventually. And I would go back in time and redo everything. So his advice to Althea coming from that perspective is like, yeah, of course, like she should do that too. The girl would have to take care of herself. She'd have to go home. That's all there was to it. What was the worst that would happen to her, really? They'd marry her off to a suitable man. She'd live in a comfortable home with servants and well-prepared food, wear ta- clothing tailored especially for her, and go to an endless round of balls and teas and social functions that seemed so essential to Bingtown society and the traders especially. He snorted softly to himself. He should hope for such a cruel fate to befall him. He scratched at his chest and then his beard. He ran both hands through his hair to smooth it back from his face. Time to find work. He best clean himself up and head down to the docks. So in his mind, Brashen is like, yeah, that'd be the perfect life. I would love that. I don't want to scrounge for my next meal. I don't want to, you know, look for work. I don't want to deal with anything that I've been dealing for dealing with, you know, intermittently and in, in between the Vivacia and under Captain uh, Thestrit. Right. So he's thinking, why wouldn't Althea want that? Right. And I think it's really interesting because he's never had to play the role of a woman in Big Town. Whereas Althea has gotten to see what life is like for men, even if it's in a limited capacity, just the freedom that they get. And she has seen what living as a Big Town trader woman is. And so I somewhat she's seen her mother. Right. But she also attends society and has to live as a prim proper woman when she's in port. Yeah. She, she does goes mention that the, she has to go to one event a year or something. Yes. Yeah. So Which, like <laughs> instead of like one a month. Right. So she does have a different perspective because she knows what Brashen is saying is a cushy lifestyle that wouldn't be that bad really. But I feel like what's missing from Brashen is the perspective of, yeah, sure, like it would be nice to not have to worry about where your meals come from and have a roof over your head and get nice things. But that's all that she gets. Like there's no freedom to choose where she wants to go. She doesn't even get to own land. All of her property goes to her, to her kids whenever her husband dies. She just has to hope that they like her enough to keep her around. Like, There isn't freedom in that. And sure, there's not as much freedom for Brashen if he were the heir, but there's more freedom in his version than there is in Althea's. And I think that blinds him to why Althea wouldn't want it. Because sure, on the surface, like you get everything provided for what what's wrong with that. But he's not thinking about the limits that come with that. And Althea marrying a good, suitable husband, quote unquote, could come with an abusive husband. She could have to deal with a Kyle. She, she could have to deal with worse than a Kyle. And I don't think that like, sure. He knows that there are terrible men out there on ships, but I don't think he realizes that that can happen in Bingtown trading homes too. Yeah. And I don't know. I just it like, it's frustrating to read his continuous brush off of Althea's want to get away from that as a childish want and to equate it to his want of just being able to party whenever he wants to. And obviously there's more layers. Like we said, he's obviously struggling with addiction now and it did lead him toward a path that he isn't happy with. But I also think that Brashen falls into this weird routine where 
He thinks about how much better life could be if he could go back in time instead of focusing on the changes he could make now and following that to become the person he wants to be. He's so focused on like, well, my life's already trash. I guess that's just how it has to be forever instead of like, what are some steps I could take to maybe change this? And I mean, I say that as somebody who has gone through therapy before, like, (laughs) so I know that's like a more healthy outlook. So obviously he doesn't have that tool in his toolbox, but. Also, he's had that outside perspective from Efren Vestrit, like say, save a little bit more or whatever. And he's eschewed that because he always thinks like there's more time later to do these things and he falls back on his vices. Right. He he has had a rough go of it, sailor. I mean, he was sexually assaulted when he was on his first ship. Right. You know, and I think a lot of that manifests like, yeah, he's not thinking of, of Bingtown in general and the dangers there because all he really knows is being on a ship and those dangers. So I, I agree with you that he doesn't have the perspective of like people want different things and there are different dangers for different people and for brash and what he knows is the dangers that are out on a ship that is maybe unsavory and he's like don't do that and he's not even thinking of like what's unsavory in town right no it's definitely a grass is greener situation i don't know i think but i mean i want to be fair and be harsh to him just as much as i'm being harsh to all the other characters too and (laughs) I think that 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 that's something that I can call out of like kind of toxic (laughs) behavior of like, well, it's not that bad. She just gets to be a lady. And it's like, have you met Althea? Because I feel like that is the last thing she would want. (laughs) And you wouldn't have to know her that long to know that. I feel like that is a very similar conversation that is surrounding with uh, Wintrow as well. Right. Like, and I know <laughs> Kyle is toxic as well, yes. but also from Ronica's point of view, she's kind of the brashen in that point of view. Yes. Like she's kind of, why wouldn't Wintro want to do this? He's helping out his family kind of thing, like pushing right. him towards being a sailor when he doesn't want to do that. Right. It's just like people want different things and I don't know. And yeah, I think this series as a whole in general is so, so stuck on traditions and what being a a good Bingtown person looks like that they stop thinking about what individual people want and what an actual good person is like it right does it matter if a woman wants to wear pants and be on a boat or a man wants to wear scandalous don't show your ankles (laughs) a man wants to wear robes and be a priest like I don't know it just it's really interesting so Brashen greets Paragon saying good morning. And this is where Paragon's like, afternoon, you mean? And Brashen's like, yep, sure it is. It's about time I head down to the docks too to get some work. And uh, asks, uh, well, doesn't ask, but Paragon chimes in saying, I don't think Althea went home because she would have gone this way. So I think she went into town as well, basically telling Brashen what he didn't ask. And... Uh, Brashen is trying to sound unconcerned and being like, oh, you're talking about Althea, right? And Paragon nods and says, yeah, she was up at first light. And Brashen says that those words sound like a reproach, as if uh, Paragon thinks he's a little bit lazy. (laughs) 
Paragon says, I had just heard the morning birds begin to call when she stirred and came out. Not that she slept much last night. Well, she had a lot to think about. She may have gone into town this morning, but I'll wager she goes home before the week is out. After all, where else does she have to go? Only here, I suppose, the ship replied. So, you will seek work today? And Brashen agrees, yep, I have to do that. I think I'll try a fishing fleet, or maybe the slaughter boats instead of the merchants. I've heard a man can rise rapidly aboard one of the whale or dolphin boats, and they hire easy too, or so I've heard. Mostly because so many of them die, Paragon relentlessly observed. That's what I heard, back when I was in a position to hear such gossip. That they're too long at sea and load their ships too heavy, and hire more crew than they need to work the ship because they don't expect all of them to survive the voyage. Russian agrees that he's heard those things too. But it's like, what all, What other choice do I have? I don't really have a ship's ticket anymore for all those years. I, I need to a place to rise in the ranks and, you know, progress a little bit. <laughs> and he says, I wish somebody had told me all those years ago that I should just swallow my, my stupid pride and go home. So we get Paragon kind of <laughs> pushing Brashen a little bit towards Althea. And Brashen being like, oh, she's fine. I need to get work. Yeah, he is not wanting to think about her at all. He's pushing off all mention. Mm -hmm. And Paragon seems to kind of catch on and drop it. Yeah. But we also get the introduction of the slaughter ships as well. Yes. Yeah. And how horrible they are. Yes. And I mean, they've got to be pretty bad if the pariah has heard how bad they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Just that's what he thinks that there's all there is. And I guess kind of that is, although you would think some of the other traders would let him on just because they know he has worked under. Maybe now, but Efren, uh, it's old trader click. I don't know. I guess I I feel like Brashen isn't even going to try. He literally isn't. And he's just accepting that, oh, nobody's going to take me. And he's worked pretty hard. I mean, as much as he hasn't thought about the future, he still worked with Ever Vestret for several years and was a first mate. People know that in town, and they know that Kyle Haven, like, is a weirdo and a jerk. So I'm sure well, they're not they? going to. Do they really? Well, they know he's an outsider. So <laughs> is he? I mean, he was born in Bingtown. Well, he's not a old trader though. No, he's not an old trader, but he is a Bingtown person. You know, I guess. And he's not part of the clique, sure, but. Well, he's okay. part, he's married into the Vestrid family. And if they hear that a tussle or an argument happened between Brashen and Kyle, who was obviously chosen by Efren Vestrit to run the ship and not Brashen, they don't know the, all the details and they see Brashen asking for work. It's going to be the same conversation that he was explaining to Althea of what had happened to him all those years ago, where he would go up to somebody like, oh, no, check back in a few days because they don't want to upset any of the agreements or anything like that going right. down. Well, hear me out. Kyle's first and second mate seem like they have a pretty bad reputation, or they would. Second mate, sure. We don't know too much about his uh, first Gantry. mate. Is, I thought Gantry is the one who used to be a slaver. No, it was Torg. Oh. Yeah, Torg is the one that's uh, cruel to Wintro, yells at Althea, mm. and knows the slave trade. Oh, well... Either way, I feel like the people he chooses to hang around would say a lot about him and the people he chooses to hang around <laughs> cannot have a good reputation. 
I just don't believe it. I I don't know. I like to believe people know that Kyle is a bad person. I will. I'm going to hold on to that. (laughs) Keep it treasured in your heart. (laughs) So Paragon is very bleak about the prospects of a butcher ship and says it's, you know, super dangerous. You can get infected, whatever. And paints a very vivid picture, which Brashen replies to saying, you're so encouraging. But what choice do I have? None at all. Paragon laughs. How can you say that? You have the choice that eludes me, the choice that all men take for granted, so that they cannot even see that they have it. What choice is that? Brashen asked uneasily. A wild note had come into the ship's voice, a reckless tone like that of a boy who fantasizes wildly. Stop. Paragon spoke the word with breathless desire. Just stop. Stop what? Stop being. You are such a fragile thing. Skin thinner than canvas, bones finer than any yard. Inside you are wet as the sea and as salt, and it all waits to spill out from you any time your skin is opened. It is so easy for you to stop being. Open your skin and let your your salt blood flow out. Let the sea creatures take away your flesh bite by bite until you are a handful of green slimed bones held together with lines of nibbled sinew. And you won't know or feel or think anything anymore. You will have stopped. Stopped. I don't want to stop, Brashen said in a low voice. Not like that. No man wants to stop like that. No man? Paragon laughed again, the sound breaking and going high. Oh, I have known a few that did not want to stop, that did want to stop, and I have known a few that did stop, and it ended the same whether they wanted to or not. So we see a little breaking of Paragon's madness coming out in Brashen's point of view here. We got a little bit inside of Paragon's mind, and he, yes, wandered from violent thoughts, but mostly fairly contained when we were in his head. Right. But uh, we see a little outside perspective of how odd he can be. (laughs) Yes. And just from what we know from reading in his perspective up into this, I think it's just the leap from thinking about how cruel men can be and then having brash and complain that there's no other choice left to him. And just this dark spiral of, well, of course there's a choice. There's a choice I don't get to make. And men are always so careless with others. And, you know, just that that same talking point that is in his head always of these dark thoughts he doesn't really want to think about. And it is a really dark place to end on, to end this section on. Right. It's, But it's something that Paragon really struggles with. It continues on. And it really makes me think about how being a pirate ship affected him as a live ship. Yeah. A lot of death around him. Yeah. And a lot of death in this section in general, death that's talked about. And it's very heavily foreshadowed and centered around the butcher boats, which Brashen links up with later. And then we know Althea jumps on as well. Yes. So that kind of sets up the danger in those sections. Right. And a part that we kind of skimmed over is just talking about how the sea is really cruel. Like there is just death at sea and that's expected, but especially on these ships that Brashen is going for, that even if he isn't thrown overboard by a two-packed deck, 
that there is the potential that he'll, if he gets a cut on his hand, it will infect and he'll lose his arm or his life. There just is so much that can go wrong in these boats. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of Althea, we kind of jump over to her perspective where she is selling her earrings that her father got for her for her birthday one year. She's bartering and trying to get as much money for them as possible because she knows she has to start her life anew here. Ends up going higher than she wanted or higher than she uh, than her minimum was, which she's grateful for. She says a half hour of bargaining later, she left his shop. Two simple silver hoops had replaced the earrings her father had given her on her 13th birthday. She tried not to think of them as anything other than a possession she had sold. She still had the memory of her father giving them to her. She did not need the actual jewelry. They would only have been two more things to worry about. And she thinks about her material things, that it's, you know, odd to take something for granted. And she's like looking around the market at these different things. You know, a a very nice set of combs is way out of her price range now when just a couple days ago she would have been like, oh, that's nice. Right. Let's grab that. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely eye opening for her to have to live in a way where she can't just put something to her father's credit. That she actually has to think about the money she has and spend it wisely. And I also do want to point out that when she is bartering for her earrings, she is using really good bartering techniques. She talks about how the man offers her 17 gold and she gets him up to 19 by watching his face and then get gets the hoops by watching his face when she says I can do 19 and in seeing that he is super excited to get a deal sweetens it for herself by adding more on top. So I just think it, it goes to show that there is some talent in Althea that like she did actually learn stuff from her father. And I think I wanted to point that out just because the last chapter was And I think some of the chapters before are just so heavy on Althea doesn't actually know anything. She isn't good for anything. She didn't learn anything. She's just a wild woman. Well, I think we we can we can both agree at least that she knows tasks. She's just never had to do them in an actual way, like working way. Right. She wasn't like given shifts. Right. Yeah. No, but I, but I do think that like seeing her competency, it's just like another little hint of she was learning things from her father and that she is actually somewhat, seems somewhat talented at what she's doing. Yeah. She's capable. (laughs) She takes the money she got from those earrings, buys some essential things. And as I said, is walking around that market, looking at all of these lavish things that she can no longer afford. She specifically says... Suddenly, some goods were far beyond her means, not just lavish lavish fabrics or rich jewelry, but things as simple as a lovely set of combs. And I repeated this part because (laughs) simple things as a lovely set of combs is a very privileged. Right. Trust fund baby kind of thing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm not even talking about, you know, Gucci and a tiara full of diamonds or anything. I'm just talking about like a Rolex. Something right. something useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely that sense of privilege coming through. Just kind of funny. I don't yes, know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting because from there, she, she really takes the time to indulge that thought of, well, what if I did go back and I put on really nice dresses and I lived this privileged life again? And 
then the moment passes and she realizes that she wouldn't really like that. That sure, those things are nice and she enjoys them, but not at the cost they come with and it's not worth it to her. And I think right. that's a really interesting thing to do to because she hasn't really known a ton of hardship in her life that we know of at, up until this point. So the fact that she is sitting here saying, I'm willing to give that life up because I would prefer to live as who I truly am rather than be forced to be someone I'm not, even if that means I give up the good stuff too. Right. I don't know. I just find that very admirable, yeah. even if it is a little naive at this point, but she doesn't ever really go back on that. Mm-hmm. This next passage here is something that is really weird for me to read and it doesn't quite feel like it fits in, but at the same time, it's one of the most realistic things I've ever read <laughs> a character do where she daydreams about like, what about this event? If my, my family found the chest that I got their gifts in or whatever, and they see that and they're like, Oh no, she thought of gifts for us and everything like that. It's so realistic of like, what if this event <laughs> happened and you're thinking through all these different things and you have to push out like, no, whatever, it won't happen. It's fine. I'll just move on with my day. <laughs> right. I don't know. I just, I, I say it's weird to read because like, it kind of flows from the previous thought, but I don't know if it's just how it was, how the break was written in between the two passages. But to me, it's like she's putting out, putting out her, this is the wealthy Althea. This is, you know, the previous trader's daughter Althea that's out of my mind. And then it goes into imagining this whole thing with like her, her mother and her sister finding her chest and being like, Oh, she did care for us. I think that part is one of my more favorite moments with Althea, although it's not a nice way to think and it's very petty and childish. I think it, like you said, is very relatable of like, it feels like a, Oh, I'm such a good person. I'm pushing away this temptation and look at me, I'm growing. And then to be like, Oh, I wish any somebody else that knew me could see how well I'm doing. And then from there be like, oh, I bet they're going to open my chest and just be so sorry for how horrible <laughs> they treated me. She wondered if her sister and mother would shed a tear or two over the gifts from the daughter and sister they'd allowed to be driven away. She smiled a hard su- smile and set the combs back on the merchant's tray. She's like, no time for such daydreams. I got surviving to do. <laughs> right. I don't know. I think it is very funny. And yeah, it's funny and realistic. I like it a lot, too. It just I don't know. It's something I don't know if it's just something that I don't read in fantasy pretty much ever. But it's such a not not daydreams in general, but it's such a mundane daydream. Yes. That it's like, I don't don't know. It's very realistic, but it almost brought me out because I don't see it. It's. (laughs) It feels very much like a shower thought, like a, yeah. I'm going to imagine the way I could have won this fight better. But instead of that, it's looking forward to the future of like, what if this happens while I'm not there to see it? Althea definitely sits in the bath and thinks about comebacks to Kyle and different ways. Oh my gosh. Yeah, him. absolutely. She does. <laughs> and she like probably fist pumps herself for being so good with that one. That, that one comeback that she just thought of. <laughs> she hypes herself up. I'm going to be calm this time. I'm going to say this whenever he says this. And then she goes in and starts yelling at him immediately. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Mood relatable. 
So she she reaffirms to herself that she's not going to go crawling back home. For contrary to Brash and Trell's stupid advice, she was not going to go crawling home again like some helpless spoiled girl. No, that would only prove that everything Kyle had said about her was true. She straightened her spine and moved with renewed purpose through the market. She buys some simple food things, only things that would last for the day. Some flint and steel, two candles, you know, she bought some things before for, you know, a pouch and some shears for fabric, things like that. So she has her her essentials. She doesn't really know what else she can do in town, but she's reluctant to leave as well. So she's wandering the market further a little bit more, greeting those who recognized her and accepting their condolences on the loss of her father. It no longer stung when they mentioned him. Instead, it was a part of the conversation to get past, an awkwardness. She did not want to think of him, nor to discuss with relative strangers the grief she felt at her loss. Least of all, did she want to be drawn into any conversation that might mention her rift with her family. And she's kind of wondering how many people know about it. The servants are eventually going to talk, but she knows that Kyle won't mention it at all. Right. And I feel really bad for Althea in this because it's clear that she misses her father and just companionship in general. I'm sure she in some ways misses her mom and sister too. She just can't admit it. And the fact that she wants to stay around people, she wants to be around life and she is like wandering around a little bit aimlessly to do so is really interesting. Instead of just going back and talking to Paragon or finding work right away, she's just kind of enjoying this moment of having people around And I'm sure also it's a way to distract herself. She talks about how the grief for her father isn't as sharp anymore, but more so because she just wants to not think about it right now. She's tired of being upset about it, which is really relatable. I feel like whenever you're in the midst of grief, there just sometimes becomes this point where you're like, okay, I just don't want to be sad right now. Like (laughs) I'm tired of being upset about this thing that happened. Like I just want to pretend it didn't. Right. And I think that's like, Somewhat part of healing, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, she definitely is kind of thinking about that loneliness, not in those specific terms, but not having people to rely on. And once again, talks about how she has withdrawn herself from being town society without really meaning to, but also kind of meaning to. Right. How she doesn't really recognize anybody that that many people in general, so she doesn't have to talk to that many people, but... The only other people that really know her are the merchants and the brokers that she followed her father around and met with them on his behalf. Any other woman her age would have attended at least six gatherings in the last six months, balls and galas and other festivities. She had not even been to even one since, oh, the harvest ball. Her sailing schedule had not allowed it, and the balls and dinners had seemed unimportant then, something she could return to whenever she wished. Gone now. Gone, done and gone. Dresses sewn for her with slippers to match, painting her lips and scenting her throat. Swallowed up in the sea with her father's body. The grief she had thought she had numbed suddenly clutched at her throat. She turned and hurried off, up one street and down another. She blinked her eyes furiously, refusing to let the tears flow. When she had herself under control, she slowed her step and looked around her. And she's facing, facing Amber's shop. Right. So yeah, like you were saying, it is... Totally normal in the midst of some 
horrible event to be like, I don't want to be sad right now. And then also totally normal to have some random stray thought just kind of worm its way into your head and then be overwhelmed once again. Right. And that's the thing that brings you back Mm -hmm. of like, oh yeah, there's death and I'm sad. And I think that's really well done. I think it's also well done to again, reiterate how not a part of Bingtown Althea is. And I've given Althea criticism for not really caring about what goes on in the land holdings and what goes on while she's away. I don't think it's great that she (laughs) doesn't care, but it is really interesting to see the society that kind of let her get away, that people aren't really trying to keep in contact with her, that it was easy for her to step away from society and kind of be forgotten. To be, to be fair, there's not much they can do to get in contact with her when she's sailing. Well, sure, no, but <laughs> for probably ten months of the year. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that there is, but I'm just, I don't know. I just think it paints a really interesting picture of yeah, it's, a mutual agreement to let go of. Yeah, if you if you don't make the effort in this society, you are going to be left behind. If you don't attend these social gatherings. You're not going to be in the know for everything. You're not going to be kept up on your, you know, your, your friendships, your gossip. Right. And if she only goes to one thing a year, that's really rough. (laughs) Right. Especially if there's at least one a month. That's fair. And I mean, I can't imagine she gets along well with a ton of the other girls. (laughs) So that's fair. Yeah. So she is rushing away, trying to cover up her grief not break down in the middle of the street and ends up standing right in front of Amber's shop. She could not think of why she felt she could feel threatened by a jeweler, but she did. The woman was not even a traitor, not even a proper jeweler. She carved wood in Sa's name, wood, and sold it as jewelry. In that instant, Althea suddenly decided she would see this woman's goods for herself. With the same resolution as if grasping a nettle, she pushed open the door and swept into the shop. Right, so clearly this is a misdirection of feelings. Like she doesn't want to grapple with the death of her father. So she's going to use anger to get out. She's going to be mad at Amber just because it's not really a good enough reason. Like she's different. So I'm angry. (laughs) Yeah, true. But she goes in and she's, I think she's kind of expecting to, be right that there's no way this person could have anything good enough to have gained a spot on this old traders selling street on her own. Like everybody's hyped it up too much and she's going to be the truth sayer to come in and point at it and be like, see, it's not that good. And she's proven wrong. Yeah. She describes the whole shop with uh, words of like, it's not even just jewelry. It's a bunch of things, you know, goblets, right. cups, bowls, combs, scented wood there's even a huge chair carved from one big bowl of wood you know this all these things and she says it's very remarkable even like the person who is sitting in the chair who she did not see at first right because her eyes just kind of glanced over because amber is sitting there and amber has clothes on that match the tone of her skin which match the grain of the wood so it's kind of camouflaged basically (laughs) right and it is really interesting she mentions that most if not all of the pieces that are made in this shop are made out of one 
piece of wood, that there's no joining pieces. There's no seams anywhere, which I thought was really interesting because I mean, I don't know a lot about woodworking, but I do know that that's really hard to do (laughs) to use one piece of wood for the entirety of a project and do it well. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely this little bit of awe that comes over her. And then we have Amber. She raises one eyebrow quizzically at Althea. You wish to see me? She asked quietly. No, Althea exclaimed both truthfully and reflexively. Then she made an effort to recover, saying haughtily, I was but curious to see this wooden jewelry that I had heard so much about. You being such a connoisseur of fine wood, Amber nodded. There was almost no inflection to Amber's words. A threat? A sarcasm? A simple observation? Althea could not decide. And suddenly it was too much that this woodworker, this artisan, would dare speak to her so. She was, by saw, the daughter of a Bingtown trader, a Bingtown trader herself by right, and this woman, this upstart, was no more than a newcomer to their settlement who had dared to claim a spot for herself on Rainwild Street. All Althea's frustration and anger of the past week suddenly had a target. You refer to my live ship, Althea rejoined. It was all in the tone, the challenge as to what right this woman had to speak of her ship at all. Have they legalized slavery here in Bingtown? Again, there was no real expression to read in that fine-featured face. Amber asked the question as if it flowed naturally from Althea's last words. Of course not. Let the Chalcidians keep their base customs. Bingtown will never acknowledge them as right. Ah, but then, the briefest of pauses, you did refer to the live ship as yours. Can you own another living, intelligent creature? Vivacia is mine, as I speak of my sister as mine. Family. Althea threw down the words. She could not have said why she f- suddenly felt so angry. Family. I see. Amber flowed upright. She was taller than Althea had expected. Not pretty, much less beautiful. But there was still something arresting about her. Her clothing was demure. Her carriage graceful. The finely ple- pleated fabric of her robe echoed the fine plaits in her hair. Her appearance shared her carving simplicity and elegance. Her eyes met Althea's and held them. You claim sisterhood with wood. A smile touched the corners of her lips, making Amber's mouth suddenly mobile, generous. Perhaps we have more in common than I dared to hope. Continues from there, but that is an interesting passage to start with. Althea, as you said, is kind of directing all of her anger from the past weeks, and as Althea says all of her anger from the past weeks towards Amber and this presumptuous upstart who is asking her about her live ship. Yeah, it's definitely a way for Althea to blow off steam, it feels like. There's this misdirected anger. But we, know, we know Amber is up to that challenge. True. We also know Amber is not the best person to come to when you're feeling a little <laughs> angsty because Amber is not going to, like, baby you or be nice. True. <laughs> And I I really find it interesting to know that Amber is the fool and to read this because I can just pick up on the fool thinking about how, how the next move will be played almost. I feel like thinking of it like a game and having fun, even if it doesn't show on her face that she's having fun. I feel like wordplay is still her forte. <laughs> yeah, true. And you can kind of divine 
her feelings towards Am- or to- towards Althea and her trying to get to the bottom of her feelings towards her live ship. That was her main goal right? pretty much. And probably why kind of anger she had towards her, like the disdain on her face from previous comments with Brashen. So she wants to know if she does claim ownership of Vivacia. First of all, like that's, right. that's kind of the main point of it. And then warms considerably towards her when Althea's like, no, she's family to me and she's mine. Like I have my brother or my sister, you know? Right. So Amber hearing that is like, okay, you're not just using this intelligent creature that I'm upset. It, it exists because it proves the existence of dragons, but also like, right. I, I don't know. Again, we don't know if she knows for sure. Right. I do wonder though, if these feelings of mistreatment or like the fear of mistreatment of the live ships stems from her knowledge of how the wit works that could be, you know, she knows animals are intelligent because she has literally spoken to an animal before and knows that there are people who would use intelligent creatures to their, to their betterment against the creature's will. And I think even herself in her past has been used in that way. And so that's she, true. She probably just really feels for the live ships, especially because they are prisoners in a way that animals cannot be. And that she herself could not have been. They're trapped. <laughs> They're made out of wood and they have to be in the water. Yeah. And so I think probably all that combined makes her a little bit wary of somebody who would use the live ships for their own gain, regardless of the feelings of the live ship. True. But now that Althea is claiming a family with the live ship instead, Amber warms up considerably. And now we get into the typical, very playful, playful, but also very opaque wordings (laughs) that beloved is known for. And especially as somebody who has never encountered Amber or the fool or any right. of those iterations <laughs> has no idea what she's talking about. And she says, you know, we have more in common than I dared hope. Althea's like, you hoped? Why would you hope that we had anything in common at all? And the smile widens a little bit. And she, and Amber replies, because it would make things easier for both of us. And as a reader, rereader and as somebody outside of this story, I'm like, because she needs to work with you because she you're her catalyst now. Like. <laughs> right. But also just the habit of the fool of not answering any questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the book, The Howl of Howl's Moving Castle, uh, describes Howl as a slitherer outer because Howl himself can never answer a question straight mm. on. And anytime I read The Fool, I think of that description. The fool is just a slitherer outer. <laughs> <laughs> And it's so funny how they can't, um, they can't just answer a question normal. They got to really make you work for it. (laughs) And I don't know. I really appreciate that about the fool. I think it makes things more entertaining. And I think especially because it's riling up Althea in a way where she's like, what kind of game is this person playing? And the fool's like the best one. (laughs) (laughs) And Althea refuses to respond to that or rise to anything. And eventually Amber breaks and sighs and is like, oh, you're such a stubborn girl. Right. Although I kind of admire that about you. (laughs) Right. I do wonder, I don't know, I guess 
did Fitz ever really refuse to play the game? Only if he was angry, right? Only if he was like incredibly angry with the fool specifically because they have been friends for a long time and like would talk to each other right. when they were kids. So I don't think that ever really happened. They they grew up together so he wasn't established as like a stubborn person that right. wouldn't do anything with the fool. Right. I do I guess I was just wondering cuz I was wondering if Althea kind of reminds Amber of Starling or mm. if it's a little bit of Fitz. Probably sees a little bit of both, but like stubbornness kind of runs through our main characters in all of these Robin Hobbs. Yes. So <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, so there is that. I also do want to just quickly as an aside, I feel like it's really interesting how Amber chooses to dress and present herself. It kind of reminds me of Ketrickin. There's this like austere gracefulness that is it's fair not the beauty isn't necessarily captured by gaudiness that there's just this simplicity and it's still womanly and there's the uh plated hair like i imagine ketrickin likes to wear her hair so i don't <laughs> know i just thought that was really interesting that amber deciding to be a woman kind of resembles probably a woman that she very much respects. <laughs> Spent a lot of time in the company of Ketrickin over and the, the years. And the mountain people. Yeah, and the so, mountain people. Yeah. So uh, Amber and Althea are sitting here kind of in a standoff in Althea's mind. In Amber's mind, it's like, I'm trying to like gauge right person. i don't she's like so, i don't want to make it too tough yet right so althea's like did you follow me down when i saw you on the docks and amber's like no but the thought crossed my mind that you had followed me because i was there first and althea's like but the way you were looking at me i do not want to say that you lie but you seem to be looking for me watching me amber nodded slowly more to herself than to the girl so it seemed to me also and yet it was not you at all that I went seeking. She toyed with her earrings, setting first the dragon and then the serpent to, to swinging. I went to the docks looking for a nine-fingered slaved boy, if you can credit that. She smiled oddly. You are what found me instead. There is coincidence and there is fate. I am more than willing to argue with coincidence. But the few times I have argued with fate, I have lost. Badly. She shook her head, setting all four of her mismatched earrings to swaying. Her eyes seemed to look inward, recalling other times. Then she looked up and met Althea's curious gaze, and once more her smile softened her face. But that is not true for all folk. Some folk are meant to argue with fate. And win. So, another little break there. I'll, I'll pause and discuss <laughs> that. So we have Amber following some intuition of hers going down to the docks probably some vision or you know whatever going down to the docks to look for a nine-fingered slave boy who we know is wintrow right turns into wintrow i should say mm -hmm. kyle cuts off his finger he becomes a slave because of kyle right <laughs> and then eventually amber comes face to face with him later and she has like mutterings to herself of like did i choose to follow the wrong person basically right. and she finds althea instead and then meets Althea's gaze and is like, I argued with fate. I can't win that. But some people can argue with fate and win, which obviously in her mind is Fitz. And now <laughs> she's looking at Althea like catalyst. Right. 
what I find really interesting about this is I wonder if Althea and Wintrow were interchangeable the whole time. Like they both were capable of being catalysts or, you know, or if, if Althea never was a catalyst and. I think they are both catalysts. I am of the opinion that the fool or Amber or beloved does not have to be there for the catalyst to exist. Right. The white prophet's job is to try to guide them to, to use the catalyst to steer them to the vision of the future that they see. Right. Right. So Wintro, I think is a catalyst and he makes the decisions he does that helps that side of the story come to fruition. And it eventually leads to dragons as we know it. But Amber, when she sees him, like, did I follow the wrong person? Was I supposed to guide him instead of guiding Althea? You know, like all these different kinds of thoughts. So I think they're both catalysts. They both have decisions. And honestly, it's really hard to... The the who is the catalyst and who is not is so hard to discuss and find out for real. Because the only person we know who is a catalyst, for sure, is Fitz. Right. There are a lot of thoughts on who's B, who B's catalyst is, um, but I won't, won't get into that now. But, <laughs> but for sure, the only one we know 100% is Fitz. Well, I do think and, a little... And Kebel Robred, sorry. Right, <laughs> definitely. I do think a little bit about in the last trilogy when B and Fool meet for the first time um, before they're uh, ripped apart. I think about how the fool points out that every person has the capacity to change fates. Yeah. Weave. But sometimes those decisions are so minute and you have to be the one to push them on that minute path to make a difference. Whereas someone like Fitz makes a decision that wasn't even an option. Because he wasn't supposed to be alive. Right. And so I think... I I see Fitz as like a super catalyst. Yeah. (laughs) I think of it as, yeah, I definitely think there are tiers. I think everyone has the capacity to be a catalyst in some ways. I just think some ways are more mundane than others. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not important. It just means that you don't really have to care about every single person you're coming in contact with as much as you have to care about the big ones because their ripples are longer reaching. Yes. Yeah. I, I could... The reason I brought up the who is the catalyst, who is not, I, I could argue that Kenneth is the biggest catalyst in this series. Interesting. In okay. this trilogy, at least. His decisions make a lot of the other decisions worth something, you know? That's fair. But, like, all of them are intertwined in some way. So, like, it's it's hard to put a value yeah, on something. Yeah, no, definitely. And it is really hard to tell, like, what makes a catalyst, what doesn't, like you right. said. So, yeah, it's hard to see. So Amber is obviously, and at least in my mind, is obviously thinking, Althea is the one I need to influence. She has some play in this. Some people can face face fate and win. And then right. offers a bowl of beads to Althea. Select one. I want to give you a gift. Take whichever one you want. Right, which is kind of a test. Um, but I do I do want to say I think it's interesting because we know Althea and Wintrow 
look remarkably similar. Yeah. I think it's noted in the last trilogy how how alike they look. Kennet remarks on it. And in the last book. And, yeah. And the, oh, yeah. Trilogy? Sorry. Yeah. Um, the last book. Kennet remarks about it. Uh, Amber remarks on it. I think even Althea and Wintrow themselves remark on it. In this book, yeah. Yeah. I don't think at this moment in time they look as similar, but they're getting... No, she. I remember she does make a a mention of how they look similar in one of the passages. I think right. when they're in when they're in the room and Kyle punches Wintrow, I think it's that one. Yes, and he's like arguing and looks at her, and he's like, "Oh, I see some of my looking past the Haven features. I see some of my father's resolve yes. and some of me even, you know, that sort of stuff." Right, because we know that Althea looks more like her father. Right. So. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting to think about, too, that maybe the reason the line is blurred is because they do look so similar that maybe it, I don't know. It's hard because we don't know if they, like, know what the catalyst looks like. Right. So who knows? Maybe Amber thinks that she's gotten to Althea before she becomes the nine-figured slave boy. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Time is weird. She does help her become... A quote unquote boy, I guess, right, for yeah. the uh, the ship. Teaches her how to become a boy to yeah. survive. But I do also have one quick question for you. So when Amber talks about how some people cannot fight fate that she herself has tried and failed and then looks to the distance, what instance do you think she's talking about? I'm not sure. I, I think it's specific. I, I think it's specifically about King Shrewd. Trying to prevent his death in some way or prevent, you know, fits from killing him or something, you know, like right. whatever, whatever it was, some past regret like that. But I, I don't know. That's what interesting. I didn't have any idea. Well, especially because she talks about how some people can fight against fate and win. So it couldn't have been anything that happens to fits, like trying to keep him from getting beat up in the dungeons. Like, I right. don't think it would be that. But... I don't know. I was like, what could have possibly, I don't even remember a single thing that the fool tried to not, uh, tried to fix, but. King Shrewd was the fool's kind of obsession and, and truly someone who cared for him before anybody else did right. as a person and tried so hard to just to tell Fitz lay off, like he's going to die. Don't hasten it. Like right. don't do anything. Right. So I, I don't know. And to be just fair. Just leave the old man be kind of thing. Yeah. Haven't you done enough? To be fair, if he would have let Fitz do what he wanted to begin with, maybe Fitz would have figured out that he was getting his life force sucked away earlier. And so maybe, maybe that's why the fool is thinking like, yeah, people can't, everyone can't fight fate, you know? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. I don't know. That was my first thought about it, at least. I like it. Either way, now the test has begun and Althea has to pick a bead and... She talks about how she's looking at this bowl of little beads. They're about the size of the top half of her thumb. And they're so intricate. And each of them is so sincerely whatever it is that they're carved that you can't imagine they could ever be anything else. Like the dolphin is obviously a dolphin. And the apple is definitely an apple. There's no piece of wood couldn't hold any other kind of shape to it because that's what it was meant to be. Right, which I think is a really interesting thing. And I wonder if it's a little bit of 
skill being left over and Althea picking up that lingering sense of skill. Maybe. I don't know, because I would assume that she's somewhat sensitive to it, and we know that Amber is carving these with her skill hands. I mean, probably with a knife, too, but I feel like her hands are doing most of the work. (laughs) Althea can't really choose because all of them are so nice and beautiful, and she's kind of somewhat suspicious still, so she asks Amber why she's giving her a gift. And Amber wants to be her friend. Althea's like, why? (laughs) And Amber replies, because I can see that you go through life athwart it. You see the flow of events. You are able to tell how you could most easily fit yourself into it, but you dare to oppose it. And why? Simply because you look at it and say, this fate does not suit me. I will not allow it to befall me. Amber shook her head, but her small smile made it an affirmation. I have always admired people who can do that. So few do. Many, of course, will rant and rave against the garment fate has woven for them, but they pick it up and don it all the same, and most wear it to the end of their days. You, you would rather go naked into the storm. Again the smile, fading as quickly as it blossomed. I cannot abide that you should do that. So I offer you a bead to wear. And (laughs) Althea's like, you sound like a fortune teller. (laughs) Which is pretty funny. Right. (laughs) But at that moment, it kind of rushes past before Amber can respond because she finds her bead at the bottom, just grabbing onto something and knows instantly that that's the one that she wants, even though she hasn't seen it. She picks it up and it is an egg. Right. And I think this is another point in this book where magic seems weird to me. I don't know a better way to phrase it, but essentially like Kenneth, where he just happens to be very lucky, but in the like most absurd ways, we, right. we also have this moment of serendipity almost where she touches a bead and knows it's hers from that instant. And it just so happens when she pulls it out that Amber smiles and that's the serpent egg. Right. And it's just so weird to me it it, it's so mystical and magical and i think that's something that this book has that the last book doesn't like yes there is magic in the world the fitz world obviously we're still in that world but there's magic in the first trilogy but it doesn't feel like this wondrous big thing we feel it we we see it used nefariously in the first one that's fair or reviled so something that is kind of like wow, look at that. It just kind of fits perfectly. It's pretty unique to the realm of the Elderlings so far. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, it really like makes the magic kind of stick out for me more, I think. Interesting. I, I don't like it because it's inconsistent. I like the feeling it brings. Yes. But I don't like that. I like that it expands everything, but there's not a specific reasoning for it. We could put something on it like, you know, 99% of the paths she grabs or like 50% of the paths she grabs this one. 50% of the paths she grabs this one and Amber knows which one she wants her to grab. So when she grabs the egg, it's like, that's the perfect one. But it doesn't make sense why Althea would be drawn to that specific bead. Right. Because in her head, it's like, she instantly knows. Right. I don't know. It's it's so, I don't know. It's weird. No, I, I wasn't trying to say that I like it. 
Yeah. I just think it makes it more vibrant. And it does. It definitely yeah. does. It, it brings life to the world a little bit yeah. more. And all of the incredibly magic things that we see from the rain wild, you know, right. the different gems that glow colors and all the, the different the descriptions of toys, all the other island pieces yeah. that kind of picks up all of those different little things are completely mystical compared to everything else we've seen so far. Right. And I guess I like that. I do. I just like it separate from the world that we're supposedly in. Right. I think, yeah. Like you said, but that is where we are now. <laughs> so that is what we must focus on. And Althea is left pondering Pondering the egg, basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Looking at it, saying it's uh, of a warm brown wood. It has holes in it to be worn on a bracelet. And Amber, like you said before, smiles and like, yeah, that's the serpent's egg. You can definitely have that. Althea's <laughs> like, you want nothing in return? And Amber says, in return, I only ask that you allow me to help you. Allow you to help me what? She smiled. Thwart fate. Yeah. So now she has Althea on her hook. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's won her over with an egg. Um, however, I do think it's really interesting. Amber's whole talk of fate and that some people can see the stream of fate and fight against it. I think especially because as we just talked, we kind of talked about how it's is a super catalyst in our mind, but I don't think it's ever thinks about the flow of fate and fights against it. And I mean, in, in ways he does, but not in like a conscious, I don't feel like it's the same way Althea is doing it. Like Althea is seeing like, this is a man's world and to succeed, I need to be a docile woman and that's dumb and I don't agree with it. So I'm going to work really hard to prove you don't have to do that to succeed. Whereas Fitz is like, I see that like, life as a royal is really hard and I would way prefer to not do that, but I'm not really going to Hmm. step away from it in ways that I can, I will, but I'm not, I'm still going to do stuff. What people ask me to do. I both agree and disagree with you. Okay. Because like we mentioned before, Fitz is a different sort of catalyst right. where his very existence is improbable. So any choice he makes kind of changes what's happening. That's fair. But so, so yeah, that is definitely a difference between Althea's more active role of like, I'm choosing to do this against conventions. Right. But I don't agree with you that I, I don't agree with like that whole the whole tone of that argument where it's like Althea's fighting injustice in the patriarchy kind of thing because I think Althea literally is just like I just want to sail I don't give a crap about anybody else I don't think she's doing it for some whole like proving other people wrong I think she literally just wants her ship you know and and that's yeah proving Kyle wrong sure (laughs) but I, I don't I don't see her crusading for everything just the same as Fitz is not like I'm here to show that all royals suck or anything he's like I just want to retire and go to a farm like I I think it's I think their their whole worldviews are much more mundane and centered on them on themselves and their their own personal wants right and and it just so happens that all of their decisions kind of affect the wider world around them excuse me 
So I, I don't, I don't fully agree that it's like this grand choice versus Fitz being like, no, I just, I just don't want to, but they are different in, in certain ways that you mentioned as well. So like I, I'm halfway there. I guess I'm not trying to say that Althea is like pushing the cot. She's like feminist number one in the city. Like she definitely is just doing it for herself. I don't think she's trying to like get other women to do the same. Yeah. But I do think that, I was just trying to use it more as like a picture of like there is a more laid out role that makes sense. Whereas like being a royal is so ambiguous and like what does that really mean? And being a bastard child is extremely ambiguous because there are a lot of paths to take on that. Yeah. And Fitz doesn't like the one that he's on, but he doesn't necessarily make a whole bunch of changes to get on the one that he does want to be on. Whereas Althea is like, this is what I want to do and nobody else approves of it. And I'm doing it anyway. Just like, so, so the first thing like active versus just being alive, just passive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Where I just, I feel like, so that descriptor of the fools of like, you see the flow of fate and you're choosing to go against it. Doesn't feel like it fits for fits to me. Although I specifically, in my mind, the end of book one in the Mountain Kingdom, where he specifically tries to go against Regal and thwart like the whole poisoning of Rurisk and goes against his king, even when he like right. connected with the skill and got an answer from Justin. It was like, hey, no, this is what he or August, was it? It's like, no, this is what he wants. He said, just mm-hmm. listen to Regal. Fitz still goes against all of those reasonings and like, no, this isn't right. I need to you know, work this out with Rurisk. I need to say that, like, tell them about the poisoning and stuff like that. So for some things, yes. And for most of his like daily life, yes. But I, there are big decisions that I think Fitz does actively take his own like wants into consideration and and does them, but not as often as Althea because of the just being alive thing. Right. True. Okay. Fair enough. I'll accept that. Overall, I I agree with your your reasoning on that though. I just there are, I think there are a couple instances where Fitz does actively take a yeah. see the especially flow. in the in the later books. Yeah, definitely later. Yes. I just think in the first trilogy, a few big instances, but mostly it's just him being it's around. Very passive, yeah. Yeah, but in the later ones, he definitely takes a big like. Yeah, this feel, is how things are happening. Yeah, it does feel like <laughs> Fitz takes more control later. It just. I think comparing the fits we have just read to right. Althea now, it's like mm. a little bit of a difference. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> and I mean, even if we take into consideration Wintrow and who Wintrow, he also sees the flow of fate and sees how much easier it would be just to be on a ship and to become a ship's boy and to devote himself to the ship, the family ship. Mm-hmm. And instead he's saying, no, I would rather be a priest. I think there's value in being book smart rather than world wise. <laughs> right. Right. And speaking of Wintro, our next section is about Wintro, but we are going to cut it there. Uh, I know we have a lot of, lot to cover and we've covered a lot in this chapter. This chapter kind of goes over all of the perspectives that we have, <laughs> except for Kenneth's <laughs> and There's Paragon. Like, well, yeah, I guess, but He's not like a main character. Also, you know? uh, what's her name? Ronica. She's in this one. She. Oh, that's true. You're right. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Although it's from Vivacious' point of view, I think. Mm. So. So there. It's kind of, you know, whatever. <laughs> She's in it, though. 
but yeah, we had, we had a couple more sections to cover, so we'll, we'll cut it there for now, and we will continue this discussion next week of this chapter. But so far, we have very we've had some interesting talks about you know the characters in general about Brashen. A little bit of redemption for Althea and her competency with bargaining. Yes. <laughs> it's, <laughs> but also a resurgence of her petty anger. <laughs> yes, her childishness. Which, I mean, I don't know. It's, She's yeah, a late teenager. I'll give her... You emotional know, turmoil, you know, yeah. death in the family, her father, grief. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's really fun to read the series, though. And I do think something that's really hard about this series that wasn't as hard last series is that with the amount of people, I feel like it's taking us way longer to go through each chapter because you have to, I feel like there's more to dig into. There's more to talk about and more that I want to talk about in depth because it's not just the same person over and over again. It's not just the same. I like, I'm not hearing the same person talk this whole time and having to like talk about the same thing over and over again. It's, reminding us of like oh so this is like where they're coming from and this is what happened last time time passes too yeah so we get a little bit more plot moving forward with so So, many moving parts i do feel a little bit bad that we're kind of taking a long time to go through but i think it'll speed up later on as things kind of focus in their directions and we can we have a kind of grasp of the people and we're done setting up remember we're still only in chapter 13 that's true of the first book um, maybe halfway. I haven't checked how long this book is, really. I'll I'll check right now. You right now. Um, thirty-six is the last chapter. Okay, so we're a third of the way in, almost, or a little bit over a third of the way in, but we're just kind of in the the setup right now. So, and I know you were you were super worried about reading the live ships, or didn't want to read the live ships the first time through because you didn't want to leave Fitz, yeah, and Night Eyes. No, I definitely. I definitely see the appeal of why some people who don't like Fitz love this series and like following the Rainwild Trader Chronicles and just everything in general. I think you can definitely tell they they do feel like different series. I mean, they are technically, but you know what I mean? Like it's different books. It feels like they could be if you wanted them to be. So. 100%. This is a very... It's a lot faster paced than the original trilogy, mm-hmm. the Farseer trilogy. But also there are people who do the opposite. They only read the Fitz books and skip yeah. these ones. Which I also totally get because this is a very different vibe. But also to all of you people who have skipped either of the books, stop listening to us. <laughs> We're spoiling everything. <laughs> Unless you don't care to read them, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> but you should read them all. They're fantastic, and they all kind of, as we've been discussing, they all kind of lend into one another and mirror thoughts and and have threads running through all of these different books, and Robin Hobb kind of wrote them in one big tapestry here. Yeah. Do you really think anybody is listening to this podcast who hasn't read all the books? Yeah, I think so. Okay, please write in if you have not read all the books and you're listening anyway. Would love to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I, uh, we have said a few warnings before, like we're going to spoil all the books. So maybe there's not, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I definitely listen to spoiler podcasts. Um, if I like the host, so maybe people just like us. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be it. No, probably not. <laughs> 
So let us know at isfitshappy at gmail.com where you can email us or you can message us on any of our social medias. We're at, on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at isfitshappy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope to hear from you. See you next week. Okay, so we have a couple things to talk about here at the end. Some things that uh, our listeners have brought up for us. I think we'll start first with Facebook. And we got a comment from Ellen just asking a very valid question. How do memories for live ships work? Yeah, something I've thought about, but specifically with our first part of this being like, the logbook thing is weird. Right. So Ellen's very confused about how the memories work, as am I, I believe. <laughs> but the whole idea that they're made out of these cocoons, that the whole function of is keeping memories in. And yet... Basically, the dragons hatch out. They eat the, eat the cocoons and get the previous... Like the... Memory. The memories from the dragon who spit... With the sand to create the cocoon. Right. That there's some sort of memory drawing from there. How that is not affected by logbooks when they're dragons, but somehow whenever they're a ship, maybe it is. Paragon specifically mentions that he thinks his memory is gone because his logbooks are gone. That's what Brashen says too. Yeah, Brashen had the idea first. But how... Is it why is that? Is it just because once they're turned into a ship, they're nothing more than a vessel and they're they're a tool and not supposed to be their own entity? And asks, so maybe Paragon's memories get harder to reach or even start to fade when he's alone for such long periods of time because of that. But maybe they need living beings to interact with the memories to keep them active. What are our thoughts? And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. I don't think the logbooks affect the memory at all. I think that's that can't be right. I do think there's pretty good evidence in the text to let us know that memories are helped by the living beings. Um, for instance, Paragon starts off not really remembering things, and he even tells Althea he doesn't know things, but with Althea and Brashen staying on board and talking with him, he is remembering old sayings and can hold conversations with things and has remarked a couple times with the two of them, like, oh, I can't believe I remembered that. So I think it has everything to do with interacting with life and nothing to do with a book. Yeah, I there is something possibly that could be with the logbooks, but not the logbooks themselves. I think it would be the act of the captains, you know, having a habit of noting down what happened during the day in the logbooks that mm-hmm. Paragon would be aware of because of the connection with the captains, you know? Right. So he would have that kind of link, that memory of them writing that down, kind of a writing it into his actual memory, if you would, kind of like a computer and just kind of etched there. And without those, he can't easily recall the memories. Without the people, he can't bring up those memories because he doesn't recall what those past things were like, the interactions. So ultimately, I do do side with that. The, The living things, I think, do help and bring things out. 
but I think the logbooks play into it just because of the habit of being on a ship. I think it's more of like the item was attached to recalling, you know, those mm. things he could maybe, maybe with the logbooks there, he could be like, Oh, this is where they sit. This is, I remember him writing this down on this day and this is what happened. Maybe. That's just my kind of thoughts on it. Cause it, it always pops up, but like, I never truly believed that the logbooks were magical in any way or hosted <laughs> memories. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. It is. Unless the pages were made out of wizard wood. <laughs> no, because I, I feel like that'd be way too valuable. Yeah. To like write on every day. <laughs> um, no, I do think it's probably something to do with living beings. I mean, if you think about it, the cocoons themselves aren't the dragon, right? The dragon is right. being shielded by that and they eat it. And so maybe without the life to breathe something into the memories, it does just start to fade. Maybe if you left a live ship alone for long enough without any living being on it, it would go back to just being wood. Maybe long enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would still take a really long time. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like more than three generations to pass long time. Maybe like a thousand years, kind of long time. Although I don't know, maybe it would only take three generations because three generations are what it takes to yeah, maybe. Uh, to wake them. So may, And at least one generation has passed since um, Paragon has been beached and he is starting to really forget his memories. And that's... Well, how, how long are you judging? Well, I guess 30 years. Yeah, beached. That's a generation about. Okay. Maybe. But For like, Paragon, that's less than one generation. <laughs> Not to be sad. I don't know. I feel like it would take longer than that because Paragon's still like is still interactive. He still has emotions. He's still like he might not remember things, but but that's also a live ship who isn't completely out of touch with living things. Sure. So I feel like part of it has to be that they're completely isolated, yeah. all alone, beached, It'd and be very then, cruel. That would be horribly cruel. Yeah. Interesting thought. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if then you could wake it back up. If you die on three people die on the deck again. New cycle. <laughs> That's what they should have been trying with Paragon, honestly, since he was the crazy ship anyway. Not that I think that they I don't actually morally, I don't think they should have. But like logistically. They could have tried it. Maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, thank you, Ellen, for bringing that question up. It's definitely something that I think we've both thought of but have never talked about on the podcast. So it's fun to have that conversation here. Thank you. We also had a message from Amir talking about the Paragon as well, Mm -hmm. but specifically his age and how he is probably about 100 years (laughs) old-ish. Yeah. Maybe a little bit older. Um. Possibly he has a bunch of like different ages in here and estimations how 30 on the beach, 20 about when he was gone. Um, So that's 50 there. About eight estimated for 17 successful voyages before he disappeared. Two years for Cable, five for beached after Otto had him, two after Otto's death, 20 for Otto and his father, which is about 85 to 90 years. And that's uh, about 70 years before the events of the Farseer trilogy and still before both Chase or Chade and 
Shrewd were born and uh, before any other event that has been talked about here. So um, very old being and the live ships in general are probably the second oldest beings besides Icefire in this whole um, series. Right. Uh, Amir did say that maybe Paragon was the oldest beside Icefire, but there were, there were other live ships that helped him like readjust when he was awakened, when he came back in. So I don't think that's true. Right. Cause he, I don't, I don't know if he like, I don't remember the history of him. I don't remember if he was the first carved and they used more, but he did not awaken first. So I, I don't, I'm counting age kind of a little bit different here. Cause there were awakened live ships that helped him right. when he came back. Right. And I mean, if you think about the fact that the three generations that, had passed to create Paragon awake were three short once. <laughs> yeah. Two, two of them did happen at once. And one was a very short life that maybe he would not be one of the first ones created. I have this weird feeling that Ophelia was the first live ship created. I don't know if that's true, Yeah, I'm not but sure. I feel like she might've been one of the first, at least. She's I know she's older, but the oldest yeah, or not the oldest, one of the oldest. But there's also, so my thought was of oldest beings in this thing, how old are the servants? Oh, yeah. They're like. I thought they were like super, super long lived. They, they might have been alive when dragons were still around, potentially. Were they? Like, I, so I have very vague memories of the last book. Were they originals? Of like, and they've been leading the Claris for like a long time, or were they like? See, I don't remember this part specifically about them because it's it really, kind of it's really, past. it's really hard because I don't think they're originals because I don't think they are pure whites themselves. No, yeah, yeah, not not originals as in like original whites or original white prophets or anything, but like. I just used the wrong word, but originals in the sense of were they the ones that first were leading the school to the dark path to like manipulate bloodlines and stuff like that and had this vision or was that vision for the school passed down? And these are just the latest iteration of leaders that have been there for 400 years or something. Mm. But either way, they'd be really old. And then there's also Prilkop. Yes, Prokop. Who's like 600 or something at least. Like yes. he's old. I don't think he knows any of the current people in power though in the last book. That's true. Which would mean that they can't be older than him. Or if they are around the same age, they just weren't in power at the time. Yeah. So they can't be much older than him. So just estimations. It's probably Icefire, Prokop. Uh, some of the servants at the school and the live ships. Mm -hmm. Unless we're talking like the stone dragons are living beings and then it'd be the stone dragons and then ice fire, I would guess. You think ice fire is less old than the stone dragons? Yeah. Because the elderlings were doing that before oh, the fair downfall. Enough. Fair enough. It's possible ice fire was around longer, but. I don't know. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's something I never really thought about. Like, who's the oldest or who has been <laughs> around for different periods before we even, like, learn about things. But it is weird to think about Paragon as 
being around and being carved and being awakened before before shrewd or jade were alive you know yeah yeah that is a really like kind of freaky thing to think about (laughs) and then he gets fits his face later with different colored eyes Mm -hmm. with kenneth's eyes (laughs) (laughs) yeah so thank you for that little fun tidbit amir we always enjoy figuring out the fun things that you've put together for us and thank you to everyone who's written in whether or not we have talked about you on the pod we are reading it and we love hearing from you guys and i hope you guys are enjoying a spooky spooky season this october (laughs) um I feel like it'd be really fun if you guys, if anybody does costumes or anything and is dressing up like a character for Halloween or a con or anything in the spirit of spooky time, we would love to see any of your costumes. Yeah. Especially ones that are centered around the series. Anyway, I hope you guys have a great day. (laughs) And we'll see you guys next time. 